Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. It's, it's really a delight to have this opportunity to be with you. Um, I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist uh, to recognize that we live in a growing and dangerously addictive culture. In 2017, a gold standard study was done that is cited by everyone, and they discovered that among adults in that year, 40 percent of adults in this country, 40% were addicted to drugs. Now, if you add alcohol addiction, uh, pornography, and a whole range of other addictions, it's not hard to figure out that we are a terribly addicted people in this country. Now, some addictions are really, really serious, like being addicted to hard drugs. Others are really kind of, at least in my opinion, uh, I don't know, fairly insignificant. I mean, if you're addicted to having four or five cups of coffee today, I don't think that's the end of the world. And I wouldn't, if I were you, beat yourself up about it. Just enjoy your coffee and and move on. But uh, I wouldn't say the same thing if you were on heroin. So... um, There are different levels of severity uh, about addiction. And the thing that I find curious about this whole subject is that, in my opinion, the, by far, the single most prevalent addiction in America is one that I don't think anybody recognizes. I doubt if you've ever heard anyone talk about it, and yet it's pervasive. And I'm going to tell you what it is, and I'm going to warn you about it, uh, and then I'm going to try to give you an alternative that will help you. But what I'm about to tell you affects marriage, it affects parenting, grandparenting, it affects the way you view your church, uh, your job, and all kinds of things. Now, I'm going to say what it is right now, but don't, please don't laugh at me. Uh, I'm dead serious, and, and don't, don't run me out of here until I've had a chance to make my case. That's all I can ask you to do is let me make a case for this. The American people, for a, 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 the, at least the last half of the 20th century up until now, have been incredibly addicted to happiness. We are a people addicted to being happy. And it's ruining our lives. Let me explain. Uh, The fact that we're addicted to happiness is, is evident in the way we talk to our kids and in just the kinds of things we say. Uh, Dennis Prager, my favorite uh, radio talk show host, has a happiness hour uh, once a week. And over decades, he has asked thousands of people, what did your parents want for you most? 
Did they want you to grow up and be successful? Did they want you to be wealthy? Did they want you to be happy? Or did they want you to be a good person with character? 85% of the people, and that's two-decade quiz, said that they wanted their kids to grow up and be happy. Now, now that then has become the defining priority of life among the American people and in the West generally. The, the, the difficulty is it is eating us alive. And so I'm going to raise the question, how are we doing on this? Are we succeeding in reaching that goal and being happy? Well, the, in 1988, in Psychology Today, a person who was then and still today would be considered the leading expert in the country on happiness research. His name is Dr. Martin Seligman. He's a, a professor of psychology at the Ivy League School of the University of Pennsylvania. And for at least 30 years, he has held, he's manned a research lab on happiness, uh, trying to understand how people, what, what it means, what, what is conducive to it, how, what is not, how, how happy are people. And in this article in 1988, it was entitled Boomer Blues. And what he did is he compared the baby boom generation, which would be my generation, with my parents' and grandparents' generation for their degree of happiness, and along the, with that, their degree of anxiety and depression. And he discovered in the span of one generation, mine, the, the, the percentage of people that aren't happy increased 10 times more than my parents' and my grandparents' generation. That means that if you're in my generation, you are 10 times more likely to, to lead an unhappy life than if you had lived in my parents' or grandparents' generation. Now, that would satisfy uh, any standard of an epidemic. And so what Seligman was claiming is that his research demonstrated that the American people were undergoing an epidemic of unhappiness. Now, in the, in the first decade of the 20th century, another study was done that was the most funded study ever done it was, uh, it was broadcast on ABC News. If I'm not wrong, I think the person who uh, did the presentation was Barbara Wawa, uh, Barbara Walters, I guess, uh, when she was still on. But um, what they discovered was that America and Western nations were among the least happy in the world, and America's percentage of unhappiness had gone up slightly from uh, Seligman's study in 88. So it had held pretty steady. It had gone up most in women uh, for, for some reason. And, and so uh, from the time that study was done, 
And by the way, it was reported by a professor at the University of Colorado named Campos uh, in a syndicated column in newspapers around the country. Uh, it became clear that, that this wasn't going to get better any sooner. Now, let, let's, let's just be really candid here. We would be fools if we didn't think that our culture doesn't rub off on us, okay? And, and becoming a Christian is not going to automatically change anything uh, unless certain, certain things we do are in obedience to the Lord and, and we are able to find ways to distance from our culture where that's appropriate. Not everything about our culture is bad, but in those areas that are harmful, we want to try to stay away from it. And so what we have to do now is ask the question, why did this happen? What, what caused the shift? And, and why has it continued to get slightly more to where a couple of years ago, anxiety replaced depression as the number one mental health disorder in the country? But anxiety and depression are running neck and neck, and they are widespread, widespread. Well, why, why is this happening? Well, Seligman and Campos, independently in these two studies, um, gave a take on this. And I think their take was basically on the money, but I don't think it went quite deep enough. But here's what Camp, uh, Seligman said. He said, what happened in the boomer generation is people stopped being concerned to give their lives to something bigger than they were. Maybe their family or extended family, perhaps their, their, their country and patriotism, maybe the church, maybe their religion or God. But instead of, of being raised and every day being preoccupied with orienting their lives to give their lives to something bigger than they were, they spent all of their time being concerned about their own personal happiness. And they looked to the self and their inner feelings to measure how well they were doing in life. And Seligman said, the self is a very bad place to look for happiness. <laughs> now Campos, uh, who was not a psychologist, but a, a, a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder, said something similar. He said, we, we have been sold a bill of goods without knowing it when we, t we were told that if you pursue the American dream and, and you're able to accumulate, get a home and a good car and, and, and have plenty of vacation time and and, and to be pretty well financially, by the way, which there's nothing wrong with that. But, but that is what you should be preoccupied with. And if you do that, you're going to be happy. And it turned out that that, did, that is not what makes people happy, believe it or not. Uh, and he said that what really makes people happy is giving themselves to some bigger set of values that's larger than they are. Now, that's pretty much what Seligman said. Now, I think that's right, but I, I want to go just a tad deeper 
And if I want you to do your best to stay with me here because this is the ball game, what I'm about to tell you. And I'm going to show you a way out. Uh, but what I think caused the shift was a change in what people in this country meant by the word happiness. And as a result of a change from what we'll see was a classic definition of happiness to a contemporary definition of happiness, the strategy for life changed from a strategy that was according to the way we were made by God to function to a strategy that makes us addicted to Turkish delight. And pick your favorite addiction, primarily happiness. And so let's just think about this. If you were to look up the word happiness uh, over the last 80 years in uh, a major dictionary, you'd find the following. Happiness is a certain kind of feeling of pleasurable satisfaction. Um, so we would use the word happy when we, I would say something like, uh, I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan, and I would, I would say, you know, I'm so happy that we finally won a Super Bowl. Or I might say, uh, I, I am really happy uh, because I got a raise at work. Or uh, we were able to get my wife a new car. Or I might say I'm happy because I got, uh, my daughter had our first grandchild. And I'm just really pumped about that. I'm excited. Uh, or that I got a raise at work or whatever it might be. But now notice the contemporary definition of happiness is a certain kind of feeling. And you can tell whether you're happy or not by just telling whether you feel that way. Now this, this idea began in Great Britain in the 1700s, and I can trace it up to the present, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, you have to pay to go to Viola for those kinds of things. But, um, but, uh, but I, I want to say there's no doubt where this came from, and there's no doubt that this happened. And so people today understand being happy in, in the context I just expressed to you. The problem is that uh, that kind of happiness where you live to, to, to kind of feel I don't know, adrenalized or buoyed or excited or, you know, pumped up because your team won or you got a raise or, your, you know, your son got married or whatever it might be. That is a good thing. Don't get me wrong and don't hear me say it's not. But there are two problems with it. And the first one is called the paradox of happiness. The more you try to be happy, the less happy you are. And so happiness in the modern sense is a terrible goal. It is a great byproduct of another goal. So the first problem and the reason Americans aren't happy is because by making this particular contemporary happiness their kind of their aim in life, they're going to get less of it than they would if they forgot about it unless they were going on vacation or something like that. But if, if they laid aside whether they're happy or not and got on with something else, and you'd have more happiness by focusing on something else than you do if you focus on happiness. 
Now, the second problem with it is that it's just not enough to justify your existence on this earth. Or to put it simply, they're bigger fish to fry. Happiness is not as big a deal as an awful lot of other things. So now that leads me to what I'm going to call the classic definition of happiness. The contemporary definition is just a sense of excitement or pleasurable satisfaction. The classic definition, and, I, and I've studied the, the history of this, it goes back to, to the idea of, of wisdom or shalom, which is a very deep sense of well-being. Uh, uh, in, in the Old Testament, Aristotle, uh, in, in the intertestamental period, uh, was the number one figure who wrote on this, and for Aristotle, the definition of happiness is a life of wisdom and character. The happy man or woman is the man or woman who exudes wisdom and character from his life. Now, if you take a look at uh, Jesus and his, and his followers, the, the Aristotle's notion of happiness is basically captured in the concept of eternal life, because eternal life is not, as you know, typically meant to mean a, a period of time. It is more a different quality of life, and it's going from uh, living forever being dead, <laughs> as it were, to, to be living forever and being having eternal life, which meant to have, to be the kind of person that manifests the fruit of the Spirit and is becoming like Jesus Christ himself, exuding wisdom and character. And so if you take a look at Boethius in the 300s, at Augustine in the 400s, all the way up through the medieval mystics to Aquinas in the 1200s, and all the way up to William Law, the great, the great uh, uh, British uh, spiritual master, you will find a consistent definition of happiness that I believe was meant in the Declaration of Independence. And it is this, this, this notion of being a wise, uh, character-filled, mature person who's good at life. Things don't knock you out because you have grown stable and there you are a person that's filled without trying, with peace and joy and goodness, uh, kindness, and so on. Now, that is cl classic happiness, and that's what the New Testament's talking about. Now, if you think about uh, modern happiness, and, the, and, and happiness means what's going to be going on in me? How do I feel? How does the church make me feel? How does my wife make me feel? Well, you know, I'm going to turn 60 in for 230s, you know. Uh, uh, you, you, I think you get the point. Uh, and so uh, what that, where's the focus if that's what happiness is about? The focus is on me, right, and how I'm doing. So, I mean, we give every kid on the softball team a trophy, which is a really bad idea because some of them aren't any good. And it's good to learn, it's good to learn, you know, I'm not very good at this, but I'm still loved by my mom and dad, and God loves me, and it's okay if I'm not good at everything. Yeah, I don't want to get to preaching here. But, but, but you, do you understand, am I speaking to you here? 
Do you understand what I'm saying? All right, all right, uh, uh, thank you. Just, just a little more collection on the plate here. Now, um, and so, <laughs> uh, so this, 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 this new definition is destined to lead people to in diminishing returns, and they shrink in on themselves, and they become narcissists who are unable to cope with life, and they turn to addictive behavior to self-soothe, and that is at the root of what is going on today, I kid you not. Now, the alternative way of pursuing what I just said about, how do you get that? I want to turn to a genius passage in the New Testament. It's Matthew 16. And I'm going to read just a few verses, and I'm going to, I'm going to show you one of the most psychologically profound texts in the New Testament. And you walk away with it from this sort of thing. And knowing what we know, you, just, you think about Jesus. He really knew what he was talking about. <laughs> he really did. Uh, and I believed he did, but, I, you know, this is, this is just a knockout text. I'll read it to you. Verse 24, he's having a conversation with the disciples after they've told him, don't, you know, you can't go to Jerusalem to be killed. And Jesus, so he says this to him. Verse 24, if anybody wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. That's America. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains everything but forfeits his soul? What would you be willing to give in exchange for your soul? A good job? 15 minutes of fame? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his angels, of his Father with his angels, and will recompense everyone according to their deeds. Now, we're on very shaky territory here, and I've got to be real careful. The fundamental idea here is that the, the, the way to become happy in the classic sense, the way to find yourself, which I take to mean to become to embody the fruit of the Spirit to a deeply satisfying degree and to find your role in life, why God made you to be here, who you're to be, and what you're to do with yourself. That's what it means to find yourself, and I'll, I'll try to show you that right now. The way to, to do that, to find real happiness in that sense, is to learn to practice the art of getting good at giving yourself away to other people for Christ's sake. Now let's look at it. Jesus says a, 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 a disciple's life needs to char be characterized by the daily practice of denying yourself. Verse 24, anybody wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Luke says take up his cross daily. So this wasn't literal, it might be, but if it was more of a figure of speech, and I'll tell you why that's important in a second. So now, what in the world does it mean to deny yourself? This is, this is crucial. It doesn't mean that you are not to have a lot of money or um, a second home in the mountains or 
nice cars or uh, that you're supposed to send your kids to good schools doesn't mean uh, that you can't be wealthy. It doesn't mean that you have to be act, act like you're a zero. I'm so tired of when you thank, congratulate somebody for doing a good job for Christ and something they did. Oh, it wasn't me. It was the Lord, you know. Well, come on. If the Lord had done it, it would have been a lot better than that. But just so, <laughs> so um, you know, um, what's the, you know, I mean, really, the best thing to do is just to say thank you. Because deep in your heart, you know you made a contribution. You ever heard of co-laboring with God? We're both supposed to count. Am I out of my mind? Uh, uh, so that means, could I have done this without the Lord's help? I wouldn't want to try it. Sure, the Lord was deeply, but I contributed too, so the next time just say, well, thanks. So it doesn't mean you have to put yourself down or be a worm or anything like that. Hey, self-denial doesn't mean that you can't have boundaries. It doesn't mean there aren't periods where you need to self-nurture and you need, to, you need to protect your time and not burn out. No, this is common sense. Self-denial is an approach to life. It's a, an, it's a habituated attitude. Through practice, you internalize the habit of seeing life in a certain way. And how you see life is that you get up and your purpose is to find ways to build up and edify other people and to comfort and strengthen them if you sell a product, if you sell insurance, that you're going to be courteous and you're going to do the best you can to give that client a product that they need and nothing more, you're going to serve your clients. Uh, and, and not just because it's good for business, that, that's a legitimate reason, but primarily because you want to get good at giving your life away to other people. And that takes practice. You have to practice it every day. And after about two or three months, you get good at it. It takes about that much time to form a habit. This isn't going to be just poured on you. You have to practice it intentionally. And you're going to drop the ball and fail. But if you keep working at it and practicing it, then you will become good at naturally orienting yourself to giving yourself away to other people for Christ's sake. I, my, I, honestly, you know, my, my wife and I, we've, she's got problems, I've got problems, but I've never met a woman, or a man for that matter, in my life, except for Dallas Willard, who, I, who is more filled with joy every day. I could, I could choke her for it, actually. <laughs> and and, and who, who just gives herself to people. And, and that's, where she, that's just where she's at. She's not trying to do it. It just oozes out of her. And I just, it's just a beautiful thing to watch. She's got energy all the time. That's because, as we're seeing a minute, she doesn't have the burden of defending herself or guarding her reputation. It's too big a burden. All right, so that's, that's what self-denial basically is. It's, a, it's an attitude toward life that you practice at getting good at serving others for Christ's sake. Now, if you, if you think that's bad news, okay, then just hear me out because Jesus goes on and gives us reasons why this makes sense. And the, in the next verse, he says that um, if, you, if you want to save your life, then you're going to lose it. Now, he's not talking about going to heaven or hell here. Just take my word for that. I've studied it. 
This is not about heaven or hell. To save your life means to come to get in touch with why you were made and, and what God wants of you. And deep in your soul, you want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit and begin to give yourself away in your sphere of influence for Christ's sake. Now, that's what it means to find yourself. And he says, if you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. But um, if, you, if you try to find yourself, then you will lose yourself. But if you lose yourself, you find yourself. And the problem today is people are told number one priority is to find yourself, meaning to make sure you're okay and you're happy in the modern sense. That's your number one job. And this principle that if you, if you gain your life, you lose it, but if you lose your life, you gain it, meaning if you give it away to others, you're actually going to find yourself. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that this principle at first glance looks crazy, but he says if you think about it a little bit, it makes a ton of sense. He said, you know, think about friendship. If you like friends... Is the best thing to do to find yourself and run around trying to say, hey, listen to how cool I am and try to convince everybody how lucky they'd be to be your friend so you talk all the time? How's that going for you? I don't know, it doesn't work, does it? Well, what's the best way to find, to get friends? Not, not, not worry about it and learn to be a friend. Learn to be a good friend. If you do that and you're not sweating whether you've got friends or not, you're going to have more friends than you know what to do with, and you're going to have to take the phone off the hook. That's a good problem to have. Now, you ever looked up at the... Uh, well, I, we'll talk about that some other time. Do you understand the principle that if you give yourself away, you actually end up finding yourself? Because you're not looking at yourself all the time, and if you do that, you lose your judgment. You lose your sense of things. The reality is distorted if you're a narcissist. And God, God have mercy on teenagers, because most of them live in a society that has now formed them into a group of reinforcing narcissists. And I, I, I don't have to take any joy in saying that. I got two grandkids that are at the beginning of that roller coaster, and I'm just I'm moving to Africa until they're 22 <laughs> or 23. Now. In addition to actually finding yourself by giving yourself away, Jesus makes the point that there is nothing more important in life than saving yourself or finding yourself. Again, not from heaven or hell, but in, in the sense that we're talking about. God, why am I here? Who have you made me to be? How can I become like you with my unique gifts and weaknesses? And how can I learn to focus on other people and not try to get them to focus on me? Okay. And that task is more important than trying to make enough money to send your kids to college uh, or whatever. I like money. I'm not against being able to send your kids to college. Do not hear me shaming you. I don't like that anyway. If you have a good job and you're making a good income, I, I praise the Lord for that, truly. And you should enjoy your resources. 
I am saying that if that is really your preoccupation in life, you are dead meat. And you will pass that death and that addictiveness on to your kids. I need to cheer up here. All right. <laughs> now, now uh, in verse 27, I want to close with this thought. He makes the statement that when you live this way, that you, you start giving to other people, admitting you have boundaries, for Christ's sake, you will be rewarded someday for everything you did and nobody saw it. See, that's why you don't have to guard your reputation. Because you end up with a false self, and what you really end up doing is trying to prop up this false self that you want people to think you are so that you'll be safe and, and, and liked. That's exhausting. Just that's a, that's a, you don't want that prod. You've got enough in life to have to worry about propping that dead sucker up. Just let it go and let God take care of your reputation and be you. Be, find yourself. Now, if you do that, you're going to be rewarded. Because you have a, don't compare yourself to somebody else. You've got a different gifts than they do and a different calling and a different kingdom. You have a different life setting. It's ridiculous. You live your life. You're not supposed to live somebody else's, Billy Graham's, whatever it is. Um, so you're going to be rewarded for that. Now, contrast that with a poor atheist. And I may have used this here, but it's a, it's a great illustration. You played Monopoly, I'm sure. Game's got legs, doesn't it? Um, so I invite you to my house and say we're going to play Monopoly. It's going to be a little bit different. There's a Monopoly board, and here's a set of jacks and a little ball. There's a coin. Over there is the remote for the TV, and there's the fridge. Now, when it's your turn, you can flip the coin up in the air. You can play jacks for a little while. You can watch TV if you want. You can fix yourself something to eat, or you can fill the hotel of the board with hotels and the Monopoly board. And when you're finished, let me know, and it's my turn. So you think, oh, my gosh, this is easy. You fill the board with hotels, and you give me the dice, and I flip the board upside down, and I end up thicken, picking my, uh, uh, making myself a ham sandwich. <laughs> well, it's, you think, well, I know this guy's a philosopher, but he can't be that crazy. And so you try it again. And guess what? I, uh, I do the same thing, but I flip a coin up in the air. Now, it wouldn't take too many times of doing this until you would figure out that it didn't matter what you did when it was your turn. <laughs> and here's why. If the game as a whole doesn't have a purpose, the individual moves in the game are meaningless. If atheism is true, then there is no purpose to anything. We're modified monkeys and accidents. So what you do with your life doesn't make any difference. But that is horrible news. Since the Christian God is actually real, our lives are filled with purpose, and you have a purpose nobody else has. And if you will give yourself away for Christ's sake, you will end up finding 
the classic form of wisdom and character and Christ-likeness, and you will be happier more in the modern sense than you would if you tried to be happy. It's thrown in as a kind of a byproduct. And so I want to I encourage you to go home and this week think about this text. Read it again. This is, this is the key that the American people don't get. That people would rather spend themselves for a meaningful cause, especially the cause of Christ, than enjoy a pampered idleness. Let's pray. Lord, this is, this is a fearful text. And it, unless we think about it, it feels like it just burdens us with bigger and bigger loads of duties. But Lord, as we think about this text, it really is liberation. This is freedom. This is the key that our culture doesn't get because they're not focusing on you as their first value and wanting to be your disciple. And doing that, we know, is going to give us a more flourishing life of well-being and character and wisdom than any other approach to life we could have. So now, as we start practicing this more intentionally, give us the strength to stick with the practices, and we will really be grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.